The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Bev and I take off for England with uh, Pat and Melissa Mullins. They're going to accompany us on that trip, and uh, we're grateful for that. And uh, we just want to let you know how loved and cared for we are. We are so grateful for all you have done for us, your generosity, your prayers, your love, your concern. Uh, when Philippians 1, it says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Hey, you have been wonderful, and uh, we are so grateful. We're just so grateful for the way you've provided for us, the way you've loved on us, the way you cared for us. So we leave on Thursday, arrive on Friday, uh, get admitted on Sunday, uh, get juiced on Monday, uh, one night in ICU, and then a couple of days in the hospital, and then back the following weekend. So uh, we appreciate prayers for that. Uh, I know you've been praying. I hear there's a restaurant this week and heard all these, of course I'd be in a restaurant this week, right? And uh, heard all these phones go off at 11.04 and uh, watch folks bow their head and pray for us. So we are humbled, we're grateful, we're appreciative, and we give God glory for what he's doing through you and it's a witness to our community. I have folks coming up that I don't even know when I'm in all these places saying, uh, you're Gary DeSalvo, we're praying for you. We're watching TBC in the way they are honoring Christ in the midst of this. So to God be the glory, great things he's done, amen? We give him the praise and all the glory. So um, usually the weekend after Easter, and, and folks, a lot of you saying, do you feel bad, are you sick? Look at me, I, I feel nothing actually. If I didn't know that MRI showed I had something, I have no pain, sleeping well, eating too much, and exercising a lot. And so, uh, to God be the glory, he's kept me healthy other than uh, having cancer and dying from it, but otherwise I'm healthy, okay? So, uh, really, I, we're, we're grateful for all of that stuff, and uh, to him be the glory. So, uh, I always take the Sunday after Easter off, and uh, we arranged Stephen Chung to join us from New York City a few months ago. Little did I know I would need to hear British accent when all that happened. So, uh, Stephen and Julia. Julia, raise your hand. They're down here. If you're new to TBC, you may have met them. They were on staff with us. We've known them for 20 years. These are dear brother and sister in Christ. They now live in Manhattan. They live on the Upper West Side, and they are planting a church there. Uh, the Coles and O'Neills, elders from TBC, have joined them there. And uh, by God's grace, Trinity Heights has been birthed, and uh, there's a church in existence that was not in existence three years ago. So would you welcome my dear friend Stephen and Julia Chung. So I'm going to pray for them and pray for the morning. Father, we love this couple. We are grateful for the way they've impacted our lives. We're grateful and, and kind of a privilege to call them friends. Lord, would you use him this morning to communicate truth to us? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Love you, bro. You too, bro. Got that Texas accent down? I'm, I'm working on it. <laughs> nice to see y'all. And... Uh... We, uh, and I'm still going to work on my New York accent as well, so it's getting really, really confusing. Um, but but it's, it's, I just want to start out by saying a huge, very heartfelt thank you from Julia and myself uh, and the team that are up there, the O'Neills and, and, and the Coles, uh, for your prayers, for your love and, and encouragement, your ongoing interest, and your incredible generosity that has allowed us to plant this church in New York City. People are coming to faith. People are coming back to faith who've been away. There are people who are growing and new leaders are being raised up. And this is because of your generosity and your vision for this. So we are incredibly grateful for you. This is where uh, Julia and I 
and got our training. We were prepared for this ministry right here, and, and we've learned more uh, about ministry from, from this guy right here, from Gary DeSalvo and, and from Bev, uh, than anyone else. And, and without, without these guys, without you, uh, we could not be doing what we're doing. So incredibly, incredibly grateful. Um, so this morning, uh, what I want to do is look at uh, Acts chapter 17. It's a familiar passage where the Apostle Paul shows up in Athens. And um, I'm going to hopefully use our time together this morning to give you a window onto our ministry in New York. Just a, just a sense of how we're going about in, in New York announcing the, the gospel of Jesus Christ right there. And I, and I believe it will become more increasingly relevant um, as, as we work, work through this this morning. Um, so Acts chapter 17. Hang on, let me get my glasses out. Okay, that's better. Um, so we'll start where Paul sort of shows up in uh, Athens' marketplace. And it says in verse 18, A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spend their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And we jump down to uh, verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has said a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. So um, ever since uh, Julia and, uh, and I got involved with TBC, as Gary said, it was 20, it'll be 1st first, first of September uh, this year, will be 20 years, uh, incredible, 1998 to now. So um, ever since we've been involved, this church has had a huge heart, a huge vision, and an incredible generosity to global missions. We've been sending people around the world for decades. It's been amazing to watch. Now, whenever we send someone off to the mission field, whether it's you're sending people like Julia and myself and other friends to New York, or whether you're sending people to Nigeria, New York and Nigeria, or wherever, wherever, we, we just know, we have this sense, right, that those people we're sending are going to have to learn to communicate across cultures. They're going to have to learn to communicate across cultures. In other words, they're going to have to find some way to take the unchangeless, timeless truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ and learn how to deliver that to the host culture, the new culture that they are going to. In order to do that, of course, they're going to have to work pretty hard. Uh, some Some missionaries have to learn another language, that they have to learn other customs, that they have to uh, figure out what the expectations are in that culture, what the prejudices are that people carry around with them. They've got to figure all of that out. It's hard work. Have you ever uh, tried to communicate cross-culturally? Just think for a moment. Maybe uh, you visited uh, another country, 
maybe you just visited New York. That's like another country, right? Um, you, you, you went on vacation. Maybe you went on a short-term mission. Or maybe you had some friends come from overseas and visit you. Just, just think back for the moment. What was it like communicating across cultures? My guess is it wasn't straightforward because it never is. It never is. This is why you can go the world over anywhere, in, in whatever country you go to, you can go the world over, you will find a Brit or you will find an American, it's one of the two, a Brit or an American who is convinced that all they have to do in this country is to shout a bit louder in English and then they'll be understood. That always works, right? It's hard work. Now, I think we're, we're just accustomed to thinking of the people we send to, to, to missions, to the mission field. We're accustomed to thinking of them having to communicate cross-culturally. We're not so accustomed to thinking of ourselves as having to communicate cross-culturally. Why would we? They go, we stay. They're sent, we stay, and so we stay at home. We're in our own culture. So, so why would we need to communicate cross-culturally? But this, this can be misleading. And here's why. If the church is being the church, we are being faithful to following after Jesus, faithful to our calling, our mission, then we will always find ourselves having to communicate cross-culturally. Always. And let me put it the other way around. The church is never not in a cross-cultural com- situation. We are always having to communicate cross-culturally. The, the church is, and here's why. We, the church is going to have its own very distinct culture shaped around the person of Jesus Christ, right? So, so our, our morality, our sexual ethics, our, what we do with our money, the way we handle relationships, our goals, our visions, our dreams, our hopes, our ambitions, all of these things increasingly, we hope, shaped more and more by the person of Jesus Christ as we pursue him, right? This is our ambition. So we have our own distinct culture, but then then there is a surrounding predominant culture in which we live. And depending on where you live will determine how close or how far apart those cultures are from each other. I've used this illustration before, right? In a place like the Bible Belt, we might expect the culture and the church culture to not be too... The chasm's there, but it's not a vast chasm. And there's hostility, but not the same kind of hostility as somewhere like New York, where it's like this. The culture's over here and the church is over here and there's this vast chasm, there's more hostility. Or you go to the UK and the church is over here and the culture's over there by that wall. And, and, and so there's this vast chasm, much more hostility. But it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter where you are. If the church is being the church, then if it's like this or like this or like this, the church is always going to have to learn to communicate cross-culturally. Always. The Apostle Paul, he is always moving in and out of different cultures. Uh, in fact, right, right here in this passage in Acts 17, that's exactly what we're witnessing. You may not have noticed it, may not have noticed it because he does it. You know why? Because he does it so seamlessly. He does it seamlessly. He just moves in and out of one culture to another seamlessly. He makes it look effortless. He may, it, there's a lot of work he's doing, but it, it seems effortless when we watch him do it. So we hardly notice it. it it's seamless. He moves from one culture. He, he had uh, what we might call this incredible cultural agility. Right? He had this incredible cultural agility. In other words, he could adapt very, very quickly from this culture to that culture. And so what I'm hoping this morning is that as we watch him do this, we will learn to emulate Paul. We may not be able to match Paul. Very few people can. I certainly can't. But maybe we can learn to emulate Paul, and it will help us in our rapidly changing cultural context where the church and culture are drifting further and further apart by the day, even right here in what has historically been known as the Bible Belt.
So before Paul shows up in Athens, he's been in this other place called Berea, and he goes up to the synagogue in Berea, and this is the kind of conversation he has. He says, look, the Bible says, he wouldn't have said the Bible says, he would have said the scriptures or the, the prophets, the law, right? So, so he says, the Bible says, and he says, but don't take my word for it. Just go check out what I'm saying against the scriptures. And so it says the Bereans were of a more noble sort of mindset. And they actually went and used the scriptures like this yardstick, this measuring rod, to figure out whether he, to test what he was saying and see whether what he was saying was true or, or not. Right? So, so that's the kind of conversation he ha- could have in Berea. It was a good conversation. But then it says that Paul leaves Berea and he shows up in Athens. And now as he's in the marketplace in Athens, it's a completely different ballgame. This is a completely different cultural context. He can't go in saying, the Bible says. He can't say that. And he can't test it, push them to go and measure what he's saying and check if he, what he's saying is true against Scripture. Why? For a very simple reason. These people would have said, what Scriptures are you talking about? We, we don't even know what you're saying. They, they, they would have said, what, what authority? This, the Bible had no authority in these people's lives. It carried no weight. They had no reverence or, or respect for it. People in Berea, they revered it. People right here, they they didn't. Now, it's not to say they had no authority in their lives. They did. It's just the Bible was not their authority. The authority in their lives were the different schools of philosophy that they belonged to. So it says that in the marketplace, Paul gets into it when this sort of debate and and conversation with some people from the Epicurean school of philosophy and the Stoic school of philosophy. Now, we don't have time this morning to, to do, go into the d- distinctions of those different schools of thought. Thank goodness, right? Thank goodness. Uh, so, so we're not going to do that. But what they do is they say, look, you're, I don't know, what's this babbler saying? What's he on about? You're saying some weird stuff. This is really strange stuff. But we're interested. We're intrigued. So why don't you come to the Areopagus and speak to us? This is a prestigious invitation. The Areopagus is where the, the, the Athenian um, intellectuals, academics, and philosophers had their heated exchange of ideas. Uh, it says, doesn't it, they, they love no, I love what Luke says. He says, it gives us his side, and he says, they love to sit around and do nothing but talk about the latest, greatest ideas all day long. This is what these, these people did. So Paul gets up to speak in the Areopagus, and in that moment, Paul has a decision to make. He's faced with the question, how am I going to reach this across this cultural chasm? How, how am I going to speak to these people across this cultural chasm? Option one, option one, he could shout across at the culture, right? He, he, could, do, uh, he could do like the, like the Brit in, in France or something, shouting at French people in English, right? He, he, could, he could do that. He could say, I'm going to just keep saying what I've always said in exactly the same way, with the same vocabulary, the same invitation, the, the same language. I'm just going to keep saying the same thing in the same way. I'm going to assert the authority of Scripture. I'm going to claim the authority of Scripture. I'm going to keep saying the Bible says. I'm just going to say it louder across that chasm. Or Option two, he could build a bridge out across to the culture. Just, just, just to, to be clear, if he goes for option one, well, a lot gets lost in translation. It leaves a lot of room for misunderstanding. Sometimes they don't hear us very clearly on the other side of that vast and growing chasm. But Paul is faced with this question. We're faced with this question all the time in New York. Uh, so in, in New York, we have numerous people connected to our church, people who come to our church on a Sunday morning or in our community groups, our small groups. Uh, and 
and, and these people, some of them have been raised in atheistic or agnostic uh, homes. Uh, they've, they've never been taught to read the scriptures. They don't know or to revere them or anything like that. It has no authority. Uh, then there are people who have actually come from Christian homes. They've grown up in the church, but for whatever reason, something's happened and they've just rejected the Christianity. They're, they're done with it. They, they don't want to know. Um, and so from both groups of people, we get the question all the, all the time. The, the, and the, the question is this. Why? This is an ancient book. This is archaic stuff. Why would you let this ancient archaic book have authority in your life in the 21st century? This is a very, very old book, right? It's an old book. It's 2018. Why would you let this book have authority in your life? Now, this is a question we're being asked in New York, but it's not just there. This question is being asked right here in Temple, Texas, and some of you know this firsthand, right? So it's true, 20 years ago when we first got involved with TBC, the, the, the question wasn't as frequent. But since then, I've had plenty of conversations like that right here in Temple, Texas. In fact, after both services, the first and second service this morning, I've had people come up to me and say, you just described my workplace. Well, you just described my... We're all in our 20s and 30s, and nobody thinks like this. No, but this, this carries no weight or authority in their lives. They scoff at this, just like the people in that. They scoff at it. Right? Um, so w- this is a question where no matter where you live in America, we, we are faced with, as a culture and church drift further and further apart, how are we faithfully going to deliver the gospel to a culture for whom the Bible has no authority? How are we, how are we going to do that? Wh- where do we begin? Here's somewhere we could begin. We could begin by taking their question seriously. If, if the culture is asking us, why would you let this book have authority in your life? We, we can take that seriously. We could try answering it, at least for ourselves. Why does the Bible have authority? You're going to love my answer to this question. Okay? This, is the, this is the answer I actually give in New York as well. The, the Bible has authority because the Bible has authority. Um, this, is, this is wonderfully circular reasoning, isn't it? Uh, have, have you ever spoken to those Christians who, who's, who say, you, 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 they, you ask them, why does the Bible have authority? And they say, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, all scripture is God-breathed, it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. There you go, it says it right there. So you ask why the Bible has authority, and they quote the Bible to you, right? And, and, and then, um, sometimes, you know, so the, the, the classic line, isn't it? It's like, the Bible says. That's a classic line. The Bible says, and the skeptic over here shrugs his shoulders and goes, pfft. I don't care what the Bible says. And, and, and we say, well, well, you should care what the Bible says. And they go, well, why should I care what the Bible says? And we say, well, the Bible says you should care what the Bible says. And so round and round we go. You know, it's, it's this vicious circle, a very, very boring conversation. It's frustrating. Um, and then sometimes what the church has tried to do is hammer out this authority thing and come up with a doctrine and theory about how this authority thing works. And so some churches will talk about inerrancy, the inerrancy of Scripture. We've got this book without any errors in it whatsoever. And because it has no errors, it is trustworthy, and therefore it has authority. It is the authoritative Word of God. Others will talk about infallibility in matters of faith and practice. This book will not fail you. It, will, it is infallible, infallibility inerrancy. These are different important ways that the church has tried to hammer out this authority thing and figure out why the Bible has authority and some way of talking about it. And so sometimes the idea is that you've got to buy into this idea, this doctrine of the authority of Scripture so that you can submit your life. Recognize the authority so you can submit, bring your life under the authority of, of Scripture. And so I know when I say something like, the Bible is authoritative because the Bible is authoritative, 
what a great argument. Uh, you know, it, well, it sounds like I'm making that kind of argument, but, but, but uh, j just hear me out, because I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say something else. Um, maybe I can put it this way. Uh, there's a secular psychologist, his name is Jordan Peterson. He, he's an atheist or an agnostic, I'm not sure which. He plays his cards fairly close to his chest. Jordan Peterson, he's made a bit of a splash lately. Some of you will have uh, seen his uh, YouTube stuff and, and, and what his podcast. So uh, Jordan Peterson, he talks about the Bible quite a bit. And he says, look, the Bible, he says, this is a really weird book, right? And I think that's the first thing we can all agree on this morning. Whether you're a skeptic or a Christian here, we can agree. This has got some weird, not just the stuff that's in it, but he says it's weird the way it was put together. And so, and so he points out some stuff that, that most of us are familiar with. He says the Bible was written over millennia, right? The Bible's written over millennia. Uh, how many books do you know written over millennia? It, it, was, it uh, was written by multiple different authors, and it was pieced together uh, almost by committee over centuries, written over millennia written by multiple different authors, pieced together over centuries, as if that wasn't weird enough. He says, look, this is the really weird thing. He says, the Bible has a, there's a story arc. There's a story arc. There's a narrative flow. This whole thing kind of fits together somehow. And he says, you've got to take that story arc seriously because this is the foundation for, this is the foundational text for our civilization. Uh, and, and he, as, a, as an atheist or agnostic, he, he gets pretty irate with, with other people who just shrug their shoulders and go, I don't believe the Bible. He, he says, you, you can't just shrug your shoulders and go, I don't believe the Bible. He says, you've got to get more serious than that. You've got to work harder than that because it's a found, this is the foundational text for our civilization and therefore it is always operating somewhere in the background of our lives. Uh, so even if you were sort of to reject and were completely vehemently opposed to the, the message in this book, you've really got to come to grips with what the story is actually all about because if you don't, you will never extricate yourself and free yourself from this story. You'll just live your life in it to some extent. So, so if that's your ambition, right? Um, let me just share with you uh, from personally how as an agnostic and then at one point an atheist, how I came, how I came to the point of, 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 sort of real, how this sort of dawned on me and I realized the power of this story and the way it had been operating on me and, and in my life. So I'm, I'm going along, right, piecing together my way of looking at the world as I'm going along, rearranging things, you know, as you do, you just do it as you're going along, going through life, piecing it together, right? And as I'm going along piecing together, I realize that there's a couple of pieces for my intellectual framework that I'm making that, that are really crucial, that without this, life doesn't make sense. I, I, I don't understand the world. And so if I take a moment to trace the genealogy of these pieces back to their origins, I trace them back to this story. And then I'm going along and I'm piecing together my way of looking at the world, and I suddenly realize there's these other pieces which are really crucial for my intellectual framework, the way I see the world, the way I understand life. And I'm like, I, don't, I can't make sense of life without these. And if I trace the genealogy of them the back to the origins, I find they originate right here in this story, and they find their ultimate justification right here. And, and so I'll tell you what I was doing when, when no one was looking. I'll tell you what I do when no one's looking. I help myself to a few more pieces, right, out of this story. And... and and I beg and I steal and I borrow and until, until I just came to the realization, oh, I guess this is the story that I'm already profoundly committed to at some level. Right? I was already deeply embedded in it. The, 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 the Apostle Paul, when he shows up in Athens, he, he, doesn't, 
he doesn't have to um, he doesn't have to assert the authority of Scripture. He doesn't claim the authority of Scripture. He doesn't, he doesn't say the Bible says. He knows that if there is any power in this story, if there's any power in this story, it is in, uh, it's not in asserting a particular doctrine of Scripture or asserting the authority. It is in the story itself, if there's any power in this book. And so he just starts unpacking the story for, for the, the people he's with. And he says, look, God, God doesn't need a temple made by human hands. God created his own temple. The temple is his creation, and he wants to fill his creation, his temple, with his goodness. And so he just goes on from there, unpacking the story of, from creation onwards, right? He starts telling the story. What we found in New York is that we, we are not claiming any authority for Scripture. We're not trying to get people to buy into a doctrine of Scripture. We're not trying to get them to... to we're not saying the Bible says that. It's just out of our vocabulary. We never say the Bible says what we're doing is we're trying to tell the story in a compelling way. Now, I want to let you into a secret. You and I have a massive advantage over the Apostle Paul. Now, you and I have a massive advantage over the Apostle Paul, and it's, and it's this. This story that Paul was announcing and has been telling, this story's been out there for a little while, right? It's been out there for a couple of millennia and it's been working and shaping civilization and it has been shaping culture and it has been determining the shape of humanity whether we want it to or not. It's been out there and this is powerful stuff. And so what we've discovered in New York is that, is that we actually, taking a page out of Paul, we, most of the time, we don't even have to, we just have to work at getting people to wake up and realize how deeply embedded and profoundly committed they are to, to this story at some level in, in so many ways. Um, so it, this was uh, last spring, I think it was. I was sat in a coffee shop uh, with a friend. She's an agnostic. Uh, she, she says that all Christians are brainwashed. The resurrection is a zombie apocalypse story. You know, mocking the resurrection like these. It says they scoffed, right? They're mocking the resurrection. Um, progressive liberalism is going to save the world, yada, yada, yada. So, so we have this, this ongoing conversation. But she was interested. She was intrigued. And she said, well, I'll carry on the conversation. And so... Um, we started just piecing the bits of the story together and she'd go away and she'd read a bit and she'd come back and we'd talk more and she'd read more and we'd talk more and we'd piece more pieces together. It's slow, right? It's, it's over time. We're piecing the story together. Uh, a few months later, um, I'm sat in the same coffee shop, different table. Same coffee shop, different table. So maybe that's what made the difference. Um, but but she, said, she said, you know what? This is the most exciting story I've ever heard. And, and, and she, she said, you know, it's kind of scary to find out that I was the one who was brainwashed. I just sort of bought the cultural line, hook, line, and sinker. But uh, she said, this is the most exciting story I've ever heard. And, and she, said, uh, she said, the strange thing is, I hadn't realized how profoundly committed I already was to this story at some level. And now she's a very serious Jesus follower. And uh, it, it's just amazing watching her grow. So Paul uh, doesn't assert the authority of Scripture he just starts telling the story that has authority. He just starts telling the story. But he doesn't just tell the story. There's something else going on here, right? There's something else. He, he is telling the story, but he's not just telling the story. He looks for the culture's deepest, most profound commitments. The, the things that he looks around at the culture that he's entering into, and he goes, what do these people really value? Now, in Athens, right, he, he walks around and he sees, he sees that they've got all of these idols and, and he sees they've got this idol to an unknown God because they don't want to offend any God that they might not have included. And so, so there's this sort of piety and reverence. And so what he does is he takes their, this high value that they have and he connects it with the story that he's telling, 
Right? He, he takes their, their cultural value and he inserts it into the story that he's telling. So he says, look, here's, let's take your piety, your, your reverence that you have, and, and let's take that and try it out within this story and see if it doesn't get blown up. See, see if it doesn't become more significant in this context of this story. This is something else we're finding in New York. It's been, it's been great to, to ask this question of people. We're always asking this question. Before we ask people to come and commit to this, this we just say, what are you already committed to? What, what, what are you, we're all already committed to stuff, right? I said this to someone recently, and they said, oh, yes, as Christians, you've got to be committed. No, no, no. We're, we're all of us already committed to stuff already, a bunch of stuff. So we ask the question, what are you committed to? Is it egalitarianism? Equality? Is it justice? Is it compassion? Is it relationships, friendship? What are the things that you are really committed to? Now come and try out those things within the context of the story and see what happens. In, in my own personal experience, what I've discovered is these things get enhanced. They, they get blown up. They become more vibrant, more alive, more important than ever before, more significant than ever before. And, and they find a justification right here in this story that they never had before. They find a whole new t- level of justification. Um, so, so the invitation that we're making is come and try out uh, your, your values in this story and see what happens. So, uh, Paul, he doesn't go in asserting the authority of Scripture and he doesn't uh, say the Bible says. He just starts telling the story that is authoritative. He then finds the deepest cultural values and he tries to connect that, those values with the story. And, and now what I, I want to do is I want to just uh, finish up here by looking at how Paul then reinforces uh, that connection, that connection between their values and, and uh, the story that he's telling. Um, so a couple of years ago, I'm, I'm sat with a friend who, he's, he'd grown up in a Christian home, and uh, he had a lot of promise. Everyone said, man, you're going to be a great pastor someday. You're going to go. He was doing some youth ministry. You're going to be a great youth pastor. This is going to be great. It's going to be really good. They, they saw so much potential in this young man. But stuff happened. Life happened. And he came to just reject the church, Christianity, the whole Bible thing. He was done. And when I met him, he was reading Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris. These are some of the very vocal atheists, New York Times bestsellers, listening to their podcasts. And through these podcasts and books and articles, he was trying to piece together some other way of looking at the world that would make sense without Christianity, without the Bible and all that. So he's piecing it together using these guys. Now, at that point, I've got an option. I could have handed him, gone to Lifeway, brought him one of my favorite Christian books, Christian author. Uh, you know, C- who, who's your favorite Christian author? One of mine, I love C.S. Lewis. I think he's a great Christian thinker. Any of you read his books? Yeah? Uh, I love C.S. Lewis. So I could, have, I could have handed him a C.S. Lewis book. Well, there was a, he was, used to be a Christian, so he may have read it. I don't, I don't know. But I could have handed him one of those or some other Christian thinker. Could have done that. But I'm trying to take a page out of Paul's book. We're trying to learn from what Paul does and the way he moves in and out from one cultural context to another. So instead, what we did, I said, I said look, um, well, I've done this with him and a few other people. I said, so have you ever heard of Friedrich Nietzsche? Um, he's, he's an atheist who is very, a German philosopher from the 1800s who's very well known for saying God is dead and he, he makes the most serious attack. I mean, to date, it's still the most serious attack on, on the Christian faith. The thing I appreciate about him is that he, he has an appreciation for the magnitude of the thing against which he's turned his spirit. 
And so he understands what it takes to be an atheist and what it would actually mean. He's not playing at atheism, which is what we get from these guys playing in their sandbox, the New York Times bestsellers, those guys. They're playing at atheism. This guy was a very serious atheist. And usually what happens is as you present what atheism actually entails, people go, I'm not sure I'm up for that. I'm not sure I'm up for that. So, so we, we have this conversation. Anyway, fast forward a couple of years. This is now two weeks ago. I'm, I'm, this is right two weeks ago. I'm sat in a coffee shop with the same guy. And he says, I just want you to know. I want you to know that I'm in a totally different place than I was two years ago. He's, he said, I feel like I've had my faith handed back to me. Okay. And, he, and you know why? He, he, he attributes a lot of it to this whole Nietzsche stuff. Nietzsche would turn in his grave, but there you go. He, he's, he, said, he says, I've had my faith handed back to me. This is what we've been trying to learn from the Apostle Paul and how we've been putting it to work in New York City, and I believe that it will be really, really helpful for you guys right here as the church and culture drift further and further apart. How are you going to communicate across that cultural chasm? Uh, we can shout across, we can build a bridge. Um, so we don't need to claim authority. We just don't need to say the Bible says we need, don't need to get people to buy into a doctrine of Scripture. We don't need to assert biblical authority. We don't need to do that. What we need to do is we, start needing to, we need to work hard at unpacking the story and telling the story in a compelling way. We've got to become really good storytellers. We've got to start telling the story in a compelling way. Then what we need to do is we need to recognize the deepest cultural values, the, the, the things that our culture around us really values, and we need to take those things and we need to insert that, try those things out, invite people to try their deepest values, the things they're committed to, in the context of that story. And then we need to reinforce the connection between the deepest cultural values and the story that we're telling by handing back to them their own greatest thinkers. This is what Paul does, right? He says, one of your own poets, one of your own as one of your own philosophers and thinkers has said. So we hand back to them their own greatest thinkers. Now, if you're thinking, wow, this all sounds like a lot of hard work, absolutely. We're all going to start having to work a lot harder. But you're not afraid of hard work, right? We're not afraid of hard work. As the culture and church drift further apart, we're just going to have to keep working harder. But you know what? It sure beats the heck out of shouting and yelling across that chasm. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege and, and honor that we have to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to the world around us, to invite people into this story. Um, Father, we pray that we would be faithful in this, that we would work hard at this, that we would look at people like the Apostle Paul and, and learn to emulate the way he tells his story so compellingly and invites people into it. Father, we, we pray that uh, as we know the story, others would come to know it and come to know you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's thank Stephen for being with us this morning. Thank you, brother. Appreciate that. You know, when I'm around, when I'm around Stephen and Julia, it makes me think deeper and uh, makes me consider things in different ways. And so we really appreciate that as you lay that out before us. Lord bless you. Have a wonderful week.